This morning we're going to be in the, uh, for the next four weeks actually, I am preaching and we are going to take a look through the four chapters of Philippians. Um, chapter one this week, two, three, and four to follow afterwards. So you can turn in your Bibles there to Philippians chapter one while we get started. For those of us that are unfamiliar with the book of Philippians, I am not much of just filling space or speaking things that aren't relevant or pertinent, but I felt this morning giving a little bit of background information on the book of Philippians was important because we need to understand why Paul wrote it, who he was writing to, and what his intended purpose of writing the book of Philippians was about. And I'm not, like, you've heard me preach before, I'm not into the, this is a present tense active participle masculine verb, um, you know, and it means this, like in the Greek, I'm like, uh, great, Paul said I preach Christ and Christ crucified, that's more of my um, thing. But the background here is important because the church in Philippi was a church that, if you read the book of Acts, that Paul planted, that Paul founded. It says in his travels in the Macedonian region, he stopped by um, here in Philippi, and he started to preach the gospel, and he started to share Jesus, and people were being saved. And so it was a church that owes its existence to Paul and his work on his missionary journey. And so Paul, in years afterwards, is now writing back to them. But Paul is writing from, if you're not familiar, he's writing from prison, Paul is in what they call house arrest um, in Rome for preaching the gospel. He's been ar arrested for sharing the faith. And so Paul is behind prison bars. And the church at Philippi is distraught by this. They're discouraged. They don't find it a good thing that the man that founded their church, the one that preached them the gospel, is now behind prison bars. For most of you, if I asked, you could probably tell me the person that led you to the Lord, that you have a fondness for the person that shared Jesus with you. I can still remember the first person that, um, that was with me the moment that I got saved was my youth pastor at the age of 17, and he was the one that shared the gospel. And I haven't spoken to him probably in six or seven years, but I still have a fondness and an appreciation in my heart for what he did for me. And in the same way, this church here in Philippi had that same type of care, compassion, and thoughts towards Paul, and they were discouraged by the fact that their leader, their founder, the one that they idolized, the one that shared the gospel with them, was now behind prison bars. And so it, we'll, re, we'll see later that um, he, the church of Philippi even sends a gift, a financial gift. They've even sent people to help Paul in his situation. But Paul writes back to them, and he wants to encourage them and to give them a reason. And the book of Philippians boils down to two things. He wants to give them a reason for joy, stating that his personal struggles do not prevent him, and nor should they prevent you from being discouraged. And he wants the church to be unified, that there's some fighting, some rivalry, some spirits of contention and selfishness going on within the church, and he wants to have the church lay them aside. And so Paul writes the book in the first chapter, and he has something in mind that gives him a reason for his joy. And if many of us are honest, our joy is usually contingent upon what our circumstances and what our situations are in life. If things are going well, if we have enough money in the bank account, if our family's going well, if there's no disruptions, if we're, if we're healthy, we're whole, then it's easier to find joy. But when the circumstances of our life are different, right, when work is frustrating, when we're having problems with a child, or maybe we're battling some type of illness, joy is a little bit harder to come by. But here we find Paul behind prison bars, locked up, um, and he has a reason and a source for joy. And this morning, I want us to find joy beyond our circumstances, beyond our situations, beyond our frustrations, beyond whatever difficulties or trials we may face, and to find joy. And so Paul finds this joy by looking at something and having something at the forefront of mind and placing something that's 
up above everything else. And so by looking at that, we will find a reason for our joy. So with that, let's open our words and we'll start with chapter one, verse 12. Should be on the screen behind you if you do not have a Bible. It says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, right? It's writing back to the church. I want you guys to know that what has happened to me, right? His imprisonment, his persecution, those that are seeking to put him behind and keep him locked up, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And so Paul's telling them, listen, you think this is a bad thing. You think this is something that is outside of God's will. You think this is something because maybe of sin or darkness. And I'm writing to you and telling you that my imprisonment, my being here in jail is actually a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because those that are in the palace guard and the prisoners and those that are in prison with him have now heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not here just making a silver lining or just making, you know what, this is, this is okay. He's saying, actually, now people that have never heard the message of Jesus, now those that have never heard of what he has done on the cross are now hearing the gospel. And so don't be discouraged, don't be distraught, don't be dismayed about my circumstances or my situations, but... Rejoice with me because the gospel is advancing. And so I want to take a moment here because gospel is one of those words that I say a lot, that I use a lot, and I'm afraid that in the church context is used too much. It's almost like I love you or I'm sorry where it's lost is significance of weight and meaning behind it. And we say it too glibly and too loosely and we say, you know, we need to preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel or share the gospel. And so what is this gospel that we are to be sharing? What is this gospel that Paul is saying is advancing? If you were to, you know, is that gospel music? Some of you are like, I like gospel music. We hear country gospel, this gospel. Um, if I were to say to all of you, hey, your employer has all called me and said you have off um, all week and it's going to be paid um, free vacation this week, you'd be like, yeah, Pastor Ryan's preaching the gospel, all right? Because gospel in simplicity really means good news or good message. And so if I shared that with you, you'd be like, well, that's good news. That's a good message of a week's worth of pay um, and no work. But that's not what Paul meant here. um, And that's not the good news that Paul wants to share. The good news that Paul wants to share is the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. And so what we first must start with is why we need good news. Why... Are we a people that need good news? And so it starts with the character and the nature of who God is. Um, For many of us, we have an understanding that God is holy, right? Um, If you go over one slide, it says in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That That God in his creation and that God in who he is and his essence, his nature and his character is holy, to break that down, that he is without blemish, he is without mar, that he is the definition of perfection, that he is wholly good. There is no darkness in him, there is no sin in him, there is no corruption, there is no seed of doubt or confusion, that in God, in his nature, in a simple form, is pure. He is undefiled, he is clean, he is pristine, and he's holy. And so God, in his holiness, has created man right? And he's created man in his image, and God's desire and God's wish and God's requirement is that man would also be holy. We see this in 1 Peter, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
And it's not only just be a little bit holy or just be a fraction of the holiness or just be a smidge of holiness. What he's writing here is this, is that just as God is holy, just as God is pure, just as God is righteous, just as God is just, that we are also to be holy, that we are to be clean, that we are to be pure. And that was his intention in creating humanity is that we would reflect the nature and the image and the character of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist or it doesn't take um, that hard to look. Within five seconds, many of us can probably think of situations. We can think of illnesses. We can think of just the things on the news recently in our own neighborhood where four people, um, homeless people were found dead and we start to see that there's some ugliness in the world, right? Um, It's not that hard to just picture that, you know, God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, God is pure, but humanity is flawed. Humanity has sins. Humanity has some darkness. Humanity has some corruption. Humanity has been defiled. And if we're honest, we don't even have to take a look at the things around us or the situations around us or turn on the evening news. If we're honest and afford ourselves a moment, we could look at our own hearts and our own desires and our own thoughts and our own actions and the things that we have done and realize that, you know, I am not pure, holy, righteous, and just, that my heart has sinned, and I have done things contrary to the will of God, and I have stepped outside, and I have broken his laws, and I have broken his commands, and I am not as I should be. It's not that I don't know what I should do. It's not that I don't know what the aim is or what the goal is. I know and desire to be holy, but in my flesh and outside of God, I lack the power in order to do so. And if we're all honest with ourselves, is that if this is the requirement of God and God is, requires us to be holy as he is holy, we start to recognize that we are not as we should be. Romans 3.23 says it quite simply for us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? The glory of God is our standard, but we have sinned against that and we have fallen short of that. And because of that, because of God's goodness, because of God's justice, because of God's righteousness, because of his character and nature of who he is, there's consequences for who we are and for our brokenness and for our sin and for our shame and for the things that are against us. And so if you're sitting here and saying, well, Ryan, that is not good news. That's bad news. You would be right that we are at a dilemma before Christ, before God, that we have this situation where this is the expectation and this is what God, who God is and this is who we are to be, but we fall short of that. And if you were to read further in Romans, you would see in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, that there's consequences for our actions, there's consequences for our sin, there's consequences for doing things that are contrary to the will of God, and that is death, is that God's wrath is poured out against things that are not of his nature, that he can't accept or he can't be in the presence of anything that is not holy, and so we have a dilemma. But here's the good news, and this is the good news, and when you hear the gospel, this is what I want you to hear and what us to be etched in our brains because all of us should be able to give a three to five minute reason or explanation of what the gospel is. And the good news is this, is that what God has required, God has provided. Every other religion, every other faith, every other God is this, is that this is the requirement, this is the expectation, and here's how to walk it out. Here's your morality. Do this, do this. Commit this action. Pray this, do this, and it's left to us to meet the requirement and to meet the standard and to walk it out on our own. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this, is that what God has required has been provided. You see, in the person of Jesus, that Jesus came and and did many wonderful things. Do not get me wrong. I love his teachings, but 
if all Jesus ever did was teach, it's not enough. If all Jesus ever came to do was do miracles and point to the awesome power and to demonstrate God's power here on the earth, that's wonderful, but it's not enough. Because Jesus' primary reason, Jesus' primary purpose in coming was this. Paul tells Timothy it and says in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We read it over and over in Matthew that Jesus didn't come for the whole and the healthy, he came for the sick. So that Jesus' primary purpose in coming was that he would save sinners, that he would be the requirement and the provision for the wrath of God, to meet the justice of God, right? And so what was needed on our behalf was provided for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 9 says that God, is that one up there? Do I have that one? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And so you can have all the teachings you want. You can have all the miracles you want. But if you do not have his death, burial, and resurrection, then what you have is this, is that the requirement is still not met. And you are still dead in your sins and trespasses. And all you can ever do is dress up the outside because the inside will never change. We see this all the time in our contemporary world is right, you know, um, we're frustrated by deaths and murders. And so let's ban guns. Right? And let's make laws and let's legislate laws. Why? Because nothing can change the inside. You know? We're unhealthy and we're angry and we're upset, so let's sue McDonald's and blame them instead of change what's on the inside. Because when you're left without the power and the work of who Jesus is and his death and burial on the cross, all you can ever do is make laws and try to legislate it. But what it fails to do is to change you from the inside. And so the good news is this, is that what God has required has been provided in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so now through him, right, you have the forgiveness of sins. Now through him now means you not were just made for God, but you were made to be with God. Hebrews 4.16 says that now we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Romans 8.17, we are now co-heirs with Christ. That's the good news, right? That my sin has been dealt with. The wrath of God has been satisfied as we sang this morning, and it has been buried. And so Jesus nailed my sins upon him on the cross, and they've been put to death. And he was buried, and he rose again victorious, and victorious over sin. That's the gospel, And that's the gospel that Paul is saying is advancing, that people are now hearing what Jesus has done for them, and he's now sharing that you can now be with God. So many of us, and that's not where the good news stops. The good news is now this, is that I may dwell and live eternally in heaven with the Father, that he goes and prepares a place for me, and now there will be one day where I will not experience the consequences of sin There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. And I will dwell and I will live with God eternally and I will be saved. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians understand that and we get that point. We know that we need to be saved from our sins and we we know that heaven is the reward. But what we lose very often in the gospel is this, is that's not all of what the gospel is. The gospel is not just salvation and then a future thing in the coming forward. It's a present reality. The gospel is not just to be, you know what, now I'm saved, now I have forgiveness of sins, and that's great, and I'm going to go on living my life and doing what I want to do, so that way when it comes time that I may pass, that I enter heaven. 
The gospel is a present and living reality that is made to change and affect your life right here, right now. That the kingdom of God doesn't start at the moment of death, it starts the moment of salvation, the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God starts alive in you now. And it's meant to be lived out right here in your daily life. That means the things that you wrestle with, the sins that you once didn't have power over, you now have power over. Right? And so, in Christian terms, we use a big word. is that Christ now goes to work at sanctifying us. What is sanctifying? It means that he's purifying us. That he is making us and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So, I may have started here, but as I walk with Christ, some of those things that I used to wrestle with and I used to struggle with are being burned off. Not because of my own efforts or my own power, but because of the gospel alive in me. And so we must remember that it's not just about our future rewards or what it does for our sins, but it's a present reality that's meant to be lived out. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 confirms it. It says this, So then, just as you have received Christ, right? So Paul's saying, just then if you, you have received Christ, you've already been saved, then continue in him, being rooted, right? Being rooted is an agricultural term, and if you, this right here is a nursery pot, it's a pot that you go to the nursery and that you buy and you take home. And the goal is, is that the plant is not supposed to stay in a nursery pot. You ask anyone that's good at gardening, has any bit of skills, is that if you put a plant in here, that you have to then take it out and transplant it and put it in different soil so that it would grow and its roots would grow deep and it would then mature and eventually bear fruit. And so the gospel means this, it's that this, so then, just as we have started in Christ, continue in him to be rooted, right? We're not meant to just stay in the nursery or to live in the nursery. We're meant to be planted and to grow deep and have our roots grow deep so that we may one day grow strong and bear fruit. Then it says rooted and built up. Paul goes from agriculture to construction. And you were to be built into the temple of God, that you were supposed to construct something and to grow and to mature. And so the gospel's not just for salvation, it's for now. And the extra good news is that it's also for eternity. And so when you hear the term gospel, don't just think Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It comes with all of it. And so with that in mind, we continue on and we look at verse 14. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so Paul was saying here, not only have the prisoners in the palace guard and those who have kept me in prison have heard the gospel, now those that are also preaching, my brothers and sisters in Christ, they've seen what has happened to me and they have now taken courage and they are now being bold in the faith and they are now sharing the gospel Reminds me, one of my favorite movies is The Patriot. And in the final scene of The Patriot, right, Mel Gibson, after he has lost his wife and his sons, and they're finally going, um, if you've never seen it, it's a movie about the Revolutionary War. And these militia men are about to encounter this great army of Great Britain. And it's the final battle scene. And for any of you who don't know history, right, the, Revolu- the Great Britain's just massive, huge army and this militia made up of preachers and workers and ragtag people are about to face off. And so they charge, and then not quickly thereafter, right, the militia and the revolutionaries are retreating. And so there's a scene in the movie where Paul, or Mel Gibson, he takes the American flag um, and he doesn't say no, he yells no retreat, and he just starts running forward with the American flag, running towards um, the army, right? And all of his men 
instead of retreating, turn back, and they start to engage in the fight and then eventually um, winning victory. And Paul, that's what I picture Paul as doing right there, right? Paul's being persecuted. Paul is experiencing the troubles and the shackles of prison, and he's taking a stand for the faith, and now others are seeing it, and they're being encouraged to do so also. We continue on in verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. It's confusing verses to read because basically, essentially, there's two people preaching the gospel of Christ. There's those that are preaching out of selfish ambition and those who wish, um, this word rivalry here is not just, you know, two sports foes that might not like each other. Paul's rivals, it was thought here, they meant to intend him harm, right? They wanted to see him doomed. They wanted to see him punished. And so they were preaching Christ in a way to afflict Paul, you know, maybe they were envious or jealous of Paul who has started all these churches and he has all of this following and they're now like, ha ha, look at Paul, he's behind prison, you know? And they're trying to make his imprisonment like, that's not in Christ, that can't be God. Look at the following that I have and I'm not in jail. And so they were preaching the gospel more so not because of the goodness of the gospel but because of what they gained from it, you know? Look at the power that I have or look at the following I have or look what I can do with the gospel. And there's the other group that do so out of love, knowing that Paul is there for the defense of the gospel. And so, if that were me, and I'm Paul, I'd probably launch into a discourse or a little, you know, um, thing about how those people are evil, how those people are wicked, how those people have sinned, and how those people, you know, need to not be selfish and all of that. And I'm going on a defense of my ministry and who I am. You know, when someone attacks me, I like to defend myself. But Paul in verse 18 says this, but what does it matter? What? What does it matter? These people are trying to hurt you. These people want to wish you ill will. These people are trying to stop you. Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. Paul lays aside. I used to think, actually, uh, mistakenly before diving into it deeper, that Paul was this kind of like arrogant, pugnacious, kind of self-righteous character. But when you really start to study it, you start to find some humility there because more than defending his character, more than worrying about his honor, more than about defending himself, he says, listen, what's it matter? It's like winning the Super Bowl and going back in and then the people in the locker room are like, well, I, I scored three touchdowns or I scored two touchdowns and I had 15 tackles, right? And the coach walking in and saying, what does it matter? <laughs> we just won the Super Bowl, right? We're on the same team, right? And so Paul's saying here, it doesn't matter whether they do it out of selfish ambition or whether they do it to spite me. All I care about is this, right? I don't care about my honor. I care that the name of Jesus is being proclaimed and people are hearing the gospel and the good news that changes lives, and because of that, not only will I just say, okay, I will rejoice because Jesus' name is being shared. So Paul doesn't take the time to say, you know, to refute, to stop, or even defend himself. His thought was that there was a greater, more important thing, and that was the gospel. Too much time in churches and amongst Christians is spent worried about the things um, 
the little conflicting things, this and that, this and that, and we need to set them aside and lay them aside because of what is great importance is the gospel. Paul writes here, and he gives two contrasting things, right? Those that do so out of selfish ambition and deceit and those that do so out of love because also he wanted the Philippians and the church at Philippi to subtly think about something. What are the motivations behind why I'm doing something? There was some conflict, as I said. There was some fighting, some rivalry amongst the church. And so he wanted them to wrestle with some of these things also. What's your motive? What's the spirit behind what you're doing? Is it motivated by love and the goodness of the gospel? Or are you doing things out of your own selfish ambition? Paul continues on. Uh, we're going to jump down to verse 20. It says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed Right? Paul here is not worried about his image. He's not worried about being embarrassed. What he really means when he's saying ashamed is this. He says that one day when he stands before God that he is eagerly hoping and expecting that he will not be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. Right? He wants courage to finish his task, courage to finish what he's doing, courage to stand up to the persecution so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then we start to see this internal dilemma of what Paul has, and he takes us inside his mind a little bit. He says, you know, if I go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? Not that Paul actually had the choice of what he was going to choose, but he was taking this in this dilemma. If I had to choose right now, if I could make a choice between life or death, which one would I take? For many of us, that answer is very simple. We're taking life. Because the thought of death, and even myself, even at the age of 30, it freaks me out, right? To think about death and to think about the ramifications and all that comes with that, that sends me, if you want to create anxiety and panic within me, I'll think about death. And it's not that Paul had a death wish here, or it's not that Paul disregarded life here on earth, it's that Paul was really wrestling, you know? And he shares it in the next verse. I am torn between the two, life or death, because I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Isn't that an awesome place to be? He knows who Christ is. He knows his nature and his character, and he knows what is gained, and he knows the glorious inheritance of the riches that he will get in heaven. And he says, so it's far better that I would go and be with Christ. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Once again, Paul sets aside his own personal desires, his own personal wishes. And it's not like Paul is wishing here that, you know what, I can just ride off in the sunset and, you know, take cruises and vacations and go chill on an island and drink drinks and wait until death. It's this. He knows that in his staying, it'll be fruitful labor because he knows that he has the work of the gospel and he knows that the message of Jesus needs to reach more lives, touch more lives, and to be proclaimed even more. And so he knows that if God's gonna deliver him and God's gonna grant him his release, why? For the work of the gospel. So Paul's gonna keep on doing what he always has been doing. So we reach our conclusion and we jump down to verse 27. Paul concludes and says this, whatever happens, right, whatever goes on, whether I ever make it out of this jail cell, whether I live, whether I die, whether I ever come to see you again or whether I don't, whether you never hear from me ever again, conduct yourselves, right, 
in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's stop right there. You could spend a whole sermon on that. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? It means to live a life that reflects the nature, the character, and the goodness of who Jesus is, and that's in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, then whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know this, that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And he echoes something here that he echoes in Ephesians, right? There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one God, one faith. And so Paul makes a desperate plea in Philippians 1.27 this, that my desire, that my wish is this, is that you would stand firm in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that you would strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Another version, some of your versions might say contend together. And if you think of the word contend, you might think of contenders, right? There was a big heavyweight boxing title last night, and they were contenders. They were contending for the title. And that's the same implication that Paul is using here when he's saying striving, contending, working. It means it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some fight. It's going to take some guts to work together for the faith of the gospel. You know, sometimes in life, you just have to call a spade a spade, right? I've often shared this with um, some people in smaller circles, but if you take a look at Emmanuel Church and its makeup and everyone that makes up the congregation and everyone that sits here today and everyone that comprises Emmanuel, um, (laughs) you have a very unique church. Uh, We are a non-denominational church which means that we have people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, thoughts, upbringings, and all that. And so usually when you have a denomination, um, there's a certain theological bend that most gel to and mold to and, and kind of fit. You know, you think you're Lutherans, United Methodists. They're all kind of on the same vein. But here we have some that are former Baptists. Uh, we have those that are born out of the charismatic movement. Um, we have those that and all kinds of wishes and desires. There's those that sit here and that wish we had more worship and that wish we wouldn't squelch worship and wish we had more moves of the Holy Spirit. There are those of you that show up at 1015 because you don't want more worship and you just want to hear the word and the fellowship and all of that. There are those of us that um, want to see Emmanuel um, invest and divulge more into our historic Jewish roots. There's those of us that want to see greater expressions of the gifts. We have former Catholics, former Baptists, Charismatics, and we're this unique blend of people that, if I'm honest, is sometimes challenging um, because we have this personal view, this personal view, this personal view. We need more of this, more of that, more of this, more of that. And, you know, if only we were to do this, if only we were to do that, if only we were to do that. Listen, Paul's writing here and he's saying something. He's saying, I want you to stand firm in one spirit and I want you to fight and I want you to strive and I want you to contend together. Why? For the thing that you all share in common, the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason that we have a church building constructed and that we sit here on a Sunday morning is because the good news has touched our lives, because the gospel has reached into our lives and Jesus has saved us. And so what we share in common is the thing that we are supposed to put to the forefront above our personal wishes, above our personal desires, above what we want to see and saying, you know what? I am living for the proclamation of the gospel. It ain't about me. It ain't about what I want to see. It's about the message of the good news is that there's a world out there that is hurting, that is sick, and that needs the message of the gospel. 
And so we're too worried about fighting with our brothers and sisters over this or over that. And guess what? It doesn't matter. If you look across the pews to the people over there, guess what? They have the same salvation and the same rescuer that you do. And so would you fight to believe, right, that they are your brother, that they are your sister, and that they are your partners in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? So would that be our heart and that be our desire, right? To see the gospel go forth. That in our own personal lives, that in our own daily lives, in our own work situations, our neighbors or whoever our life may happen to encounter, would we look for the opportunity and would we take advantages of the moments to share the gospel? Right? It's life-changing. Right? If we look at what it has done for us and what it has brought to us, we recognize that it is the thing that has changed our life. That's why we sit here in these pews. And wouldn't we want to see more people receive the good news of Jesus Christ? I love it. Paul says, whatever happens, man, it ain't about me. I could stay my life here in this, in this prison. I could die tomorrow. That doesn't matter. It's not about my desires or my wishes or getting free from prison or defending my name or my honor. What matters is that the gospel would advance. So if you're here this morning and you've never responded to the good news or you never heard the good news and you're stuck in that situation of you see your sin and you see your ugliness and you see your brokenness and you know what is required of you and you've never accepted the good news, today's the day to place your faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And it's not on your works. It's not on what you've done. The Old Testament even says is that your worths are like filthy rags to him that has been provided to you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that he has forgiven your sins and he has wiped your slate clean and you now stand in the righteousness of God on behalf of him. And so if you've never received that, receive that today. For those of us that have received the good news, let this morning serve as a reminder that what is to come above all, above what I want, above what I want to see, above my desires, is that I would lift and exalt his name and that I would look for the opportunities and the chance. Listen, I don't know why, but Jesus has given us the responsibility to carry his message and to proclaim his gospel and to be the ones that shine his light. And we're fallen and we're broken and sure, we're gonna fight. But would we contend together for the gospel? Would we look for the moment to share Jesus with others.